Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast not quite at the summit of its ambitions. My name is Corey Hainslist, and Steve Haynes has still not returned from Peppa Pig World. He's obviously a fan of mass transit systems. I've got another fan of mass transit systems here with me. We've got Shaz Rahman again. Hello, Shaz. Hello, Corey. So Shaz and I are going to talk about the COP26 summit. We talked a bit before the summit, and now we're going to have a think about how much of a success was COP26? Where's the hope? So Shaz, the aim of COP26 was to keep 1.5 alive and limit the rise in world temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Did that work? According to the politicians, yes. Job done, let's go home. End of episode. Is there anything we might want to explore in a bit more detail, do you reckon? Oh, oh if you want to look at the actual policies and whether that will achieve net zero by 2050, absolutely no chance. <laughs> Okay, so in terms of the envelope then, so uh, I think tortoise played quite well as a, as a sort of practical possibility, it's on life support. As a slogan, it's still on. So at the moment, the world is predicted to sort of go to 2.7 degrees warming, which would be pretty apocalyptic, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, when we talked about this before, uh, there was various scenarios, and once you get above two, two and a half, it's like those films that I used to see where whole cities disappeared of landslides, but then that has happened in 2021. So these apocalypse images are happening more regularly. So to, to go back to the 1.5 degrees, it's encouraging that there is no longer any resistance to climate change as a concept. I still have my reservations about Russia uh, in pure geopolitical terms, Russia may benefit from climate change. There's lots of land that's currently frozen in Siberia that could become a lovely oil reserves and could become habitable. And Russia is a massive landmass. That, that landmass could become lots of Russian wealth. Uh, but that, that, that minor point aside... That's terribly cynical, Shaz. Surely, surely someone like Vladimir Putin isn't quite as evil genius enough to... No, never mind. Go on. Well, I mean, he wasn't there, so that I mean that that's, that's a that's a worrying sign. But overall, it's progress because everyone is now at least saying that one point five degrees is a tipping point, and we can see that because we're at about one point one at the moment. And you know, storm is it Storm Arwen? Yes. Yeah, a battering uh, the northeast coast. As an isolated incident, sure, I mean, that, that could happen, but there's going to be another storm like that in six months' time. Yeah, it's, it's focusing just on sort of on trends, not individual events, isn't it? And I suppose that what we said when we've talked about this before is that those sort of extreme weather events are more likely to happen. So they might happen every five years, but then they happen every two years. They might happen every hundred years, but then they happen every 10. And so it just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. I suppose, so two degrees is sort of, as you say, when you get that sort of exponential change. So I think what people are worried about at two degrees is, as you say, the Arctic melts, the Amazon all burns, 
and Siberia all melts. And that just releases tons and tons and tons of carbon into the atmosphere. And it just becomes a bit of a death spiral. And you have millions of climate refugees trying to find somewhere else. And migration patterns destabilize the, the wealthy. I think, I think the wealthy thought they were immune to all of this. And so even if they knew climate change was happening, they're in their lovely big mansions. But those mansions are also susceptible to California wildfires. They are also susceptible to landslides in very nice Western Germany. So I think it's one of the things that's dawning on politicians is that actually it's not just uh, poor people in Bangladesh who are going to get flooded and lose their coast. It's everybody are going to be affected significantly. Yeah, and more places will be will be uninhabitable. And I suppose the number crunching from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact and Research, you say that if all countries took to their net zero targets, which is it's called what the point of COP is, isn't it? You sort of have it every five years. People say we're going to do this stuff. If everyone did the stuff they said, then we limit warming to 1.8 to 1.9 degrees, which is tantalising, really. But again, that assumption that all of the things pledged at that summit happen. So, for instance... I mean, and there is some progress, I suppose. So India pledged to go net zero, I think, by 2070 for the first time. Uh, That's far too late. Which is, yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, it might, like, by that point, all these things we just mentioned have already happened. No, that, that's true. I realised that in this one, I'm going to end up trying to be the voice, trying to find some hope, which is my unusual position in this podcast. <laughs> well, the, the difference there, though, is whilst India may be in a slightly different position to other countries, it's got a massively... Got a billion people who are across a continent practically in terms of size. The demands of a citizen in the north are the world apart from the citizens in the south. So, you know, if you live in the Himalayas or by the Himalayas, for example, uh, your lifestyle is very, very different as, as if you live on the coast in a tourist resort. So India does have a problem. It's also incredibly unequal. Mm. So there's a very small part of the population who has extremely high levels of wealth and the vast majority, the average Indian citizen will never leave India. They will never go on a plane. Uh, it's the same across the developing world. Is that, that's why the climate justice idea was so important, that those that are affected most are the ones that have contributed least. So with India, I think they've got a big coal problem. That's one of the reasons why they're, they're trying to delay, is that they've seen Britain and America and you know all these other countries get rich quick off coal. And it's an easy thing for them to do as well. But obviously, we can't have that happening anymore. And I suppose in India as well, there's sort of massive sort of issue related, I suppose, to burning fossil fuels is air pollution, where um, massive health impact of terrible, uh, dirty air in cities, which is killing lots of people, seeing lots of uh, instances of, uh, of cancers, I think, lung cancers even, in people who don't smoke because of that. Um, yeah, when I started campaigning with Burger Friends of the Earth about nearly 10 years ago, we used to quote that it was nearly 500 people a year dying prematurely from air pollution in Birmingham. Without quote, it's 1,000 people a year dying prematurely of air pollution in Birmingham. Mm. So, And that's in the space of less than 10 years. So, But that, that's that's not a climate change issue, though. No, that, no, that, it's, that no, is, no, that to be a fair, side no, effect of coal and having basically... A transportation system reliant on burning fossil fuels. 
Um, Which could be a good segue into electric cars. Yes. So let's talk about cars then, because I suppose the point of COP is usually, as you say, you have you bring all the countries in the world together, and it turns out quite a lot of fossil fuel executives, which is fun. Yeah, they were the biggest single lobbyist lobbying group. The overall fossil fuel lobby was bigger than any one country, which is staggering. Well, and it's more, and considering the amount of, as you say, there's groups from either nations who are sinking and will sink who weren't at, able to get space at the summit, and you've got the fossil fuel countries there. It's um, what's the word? Suboptimal. Let's go with suboptimal. Um, so essentially, COP is usually meant to be about nations sit around make these promises, in sort of individual countries committing to things. The UK, and this is according to Tortoise anyway. The UK government needed headlines and results. Um, amazing that Boris Johnson sees this as a sort of you know, I suppose uh, global Britain uh, thinking about short term rather than long strategic implications. I mean, it's impossible to think that that could be the reason but um very boris johnson style kind of he was talking about four sectors that needed agreement on one of which is cars talking about the sort of burning of, of fossil fuels and what the uk was hoping for was essentially 100 percent zero emission new cars and vans in leading markets by 2035 worldwide by 2040 now a few people signed norway signed uk signed for jaguar land rover but Four of the biggest car manufacturers didn't sign, including Volkswagen and Toyota, and America and Japan and Germany didn't either. Yeah, so talk about cars. At Transport Day, I got to hear from the CEO of Volvo, but I didn't hear from any cycling manufacturers. I didn't hear from any bus companies. Like The, the climate emergency isn't going to be solved by replacing every fossil fuel car with an electric car. The embedded carbon involved in creating an electric car is far more than buses or trains or bicycles. Like we need to transform to a society for a whole host of reasons, not just climate change related reasons, away from cars as the norm where three or four cars per household is normal. Like that is no way sustainable. That is there is no way we can tackle the climate emergency, have three or four electric cars instead in each household. Why wasn't on transport day a bus lobby there saying, you know what'll be really good? Rather than 100 single people in their cars driving to work to one office, why don't people get on four buses instead? Uh, From a space point of view, from a time point of view, rather than having all these congestion, all all these cars polluting, all these cars, even even electric cars still produce air pollution through rubber in their tyres. We want to get them walking to work, we want to get them cycling to work, we want to get them on trains and buses. We don't need them getting another piece of expensive embedded carbon. So are there sort of two things going on? Is one of them just the sort of, there's just a better car lobby than there is a non-car lobby. And it's the, as you say, it's it's that lobby that gets the room and is is sort of in the room making the decisions. It's also just because it's quite hard. And we talked about this at the start of the year in terms of how the UK might achieve net zero. A lot of the low hanging fruit has been done, but this is where you need some, political shove and certainly just thinking about a sort of uk context you've already got lots of conservatives worried that boris johnson's pursuing this woke green agenda um that he doesn't have the political capital to do that and rishi Sunak won't let him and then we'll cut duty on domestic flights anyway with, with cars uh, there is a massive lobby in the uk you know britain has a proud history of building cars 
network since the 1950s. And because our whole transportation network is designed around the motor car, we found it very, very difficult to see an alternative, to even believe that an alternative is possible, though it has to be. And so because the motor lobby is so strong, as you've already said, the vo- when the room is there, who is there? It's the fossil fuel lobbyists. It's the car manufacturers. It's not the cycling lobbyists. It's it's not people in community energy with their small little wind turbine on their community farm. It's not the people who we need to be engaging with. It's the business as normal. We need to create new jobs. We'll create electric cars as new jobs. We'll have gigafactories to produce these batteries for these new cars. You're transferring a massive problem into a slightly less massive problem rather than the radical systemic change we need to alleviate those carbon emissions to prevent them from happening. Another way, maybe, of doing that might be, say, to stop burning coal. Coal is the big one. It's the easiest one because it's becoming more and more unprofitable just economically. One of the reasons why Britain was so good at phasing out coal ahead of everybody else is that the alternatives are becoming cheaper. So I work for a big energy company. I work for a big multinational energy company. And 10 years ago when I started, they had big gas plants. They had big coal plants. Five years ago, they basically siphoned them all off into another company and got rid of it at the first opportunity. And now it's involved in renewables and district heating. And it's, uh, it's a different world. They saw this coming and they altered it, altered their path accordingly. And I mean, not having coal is a bit of a problem at the moment with our energy crisis, but longer term trend, renewables are going to become cheaper than coal. Though the key advantage to coal at the moment still is that it's predictable. You can still burn your coal and you know exactly how much you're going to get. You know exactly how much you need to get heat for X amount of houses. Uh, But 10 years as the price of, like the price of gas will have to go up. Like it will have to be artificially go up through government policy. Once that happens, electric becomes cheaper. We can then move. We can then almost entirely move away from coal. In um, we regularly have coal-free days in the UK now, where there's no mm. coal burns at all. That can happen elsewhere. The problem is, is that it's so much cheaper for India to burn the coal, as we mentioned earlier, than it is to, for them to build what massive solar arrays, tidal arrays in the south big wind turbines in the north it's 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 hard to it's hard when you've got such a diverse landscape to be able to create a completely new energy grid system on something that is intermittent and the coal controversy was the big issue at the end of the summit wasn't it where in the communique they wanted it to be phased out i think by um uh, phased out uh the wording was changed i think at the um last minute yeah, but I think the behest of India in China to be phased down rather than out, um, which made Alex Sharma cry, which meant that he was mocked by the Deputy Prime Minister, I think, of Australia, um, who we ha- haven't mentioned, but again, big coal-burning nation, not really down massively with honouring any net zero commitments. And uh, I mean, amazing that you'd get an Australian with some sort of toxic masculinity related comment about mocking someone for crying uh, it's unlike the australian side i know and love on on television i do despair the british government but it makes the australian government look like angels in terms of their climate action 
But I suppose Australia isn't really being threatened at the moment, is it, by the climate crisis? So I can see why they're sort of dragging their feet on it. There is also cash and trees. Trees is probably a sort of easy one just to say sort of very quickly that actually 130 countries, including Bolsonaro, actually signed an agreement to and say... he's the big one, isn't he? He's the one we really just get on with. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, so trying to reverse forest loss. Indonesia are backed out, but there's a sort of mini agreement. A big one is cash though, isn't it? And we talked about that on our last episode about COP, about this sort of need, and you've talked about it already, about um, the fact that it's going to be the poorest countries who are going to be hit worse by this. And there was talk, I think, of trying to line up 100 billion a year in finance for poor countries that was proposed in Paris, but there wasn't really an agreement made. Um, that I think there was an agreement in principle to start payments next year at the earliest, which is a bit of a problem when the problem is happening right now. Yeah, it just needed to happen 15 years ago. Though it is a step, though. But the problem is, is that the, uh, the nations that will receive the money haven't agreed to how they're going to get this money. How is this going to be distributed? We, we, we still don't know the details. Like, is it... A country saying, I'm gonna, my island here is going to get flooded tomorrow. Give me some flood reparations. Or is it a case of, my country is coal dependent. I need solar panels. How are we going to distribute these reparations? I don't know. I don't think you know either. I, I don't think that the, I don't think we have that knowledge yet. Like, we've got an idea as to what could happen, but the, the, the infighting is going to get so bitter and... Each country is probably going to be pitched against each other to say, I'm more deserving than you. And you're going to end up with a race to the bottom. Well, and I think also, I think it's one of the things that the American contingent was very much pushing back on, wasn't it? Because they don't really like this idea of sort of unlimited liability of reparations and you don't quite know where it would finish. Yeah. Talking about America, about a week ago, I saw Joe Biden driving a big electric Hummer, like this massive electric Hummer. And I was like, uh, how I mean, oh, I understand how, but we've just been at COP, which and we've heard all the stories about how important this is, and you know, we're going to save the world and all this, and then you're driving an electric hover. It's called triangulation chairs. Well, yeah, but this thing is absolutely obscenely massive. It has no practical use other than I oh, know, no, it has no practical use unless you're going to war, but. They, 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 well, this... I hate to break it to you. <laughs> well, well, quite. But yeah, so the disconnect between what politicians have said at this conference, you know, it's very important, and then they then support things which is no way can an electric car of that size be considered environmentally friendly. So yeah, so I, we mentioned this before with America is that America, like per capita, is far far ahead in terms of emissions per person, absolutely far out ahead. It's because it's got quite extreme uh, quite extreme weather patterns either side. So, you know, you've got Texas, which has all of the air conditioning. You've got, uh, you know, Minnesota, which and Colorado, and will have lots of cool, uh, will have lots, uh, has the opposite problem, it's too cold. So you've got large energy uses in the heating, but then you've got some massive car network where everyone just flies everywhere. Uh, and so, uh, if you can't reduce that, and you don't even want to, you don't even think you need to in terms of what they're using, electric cars 
of massive highways are only a bit better than fossil fuel cars. And I know the, and there was a big moral panic on Fox News about burgers earlier this year, wasn't there? Yeah. Because obviously part of the thing you could do is on, on methane is sort of stop cows farting by not farming them intensively, mm. which then becomes any sort of move to, well, maybe we could have a few more vegetarian meals becomes a threat to the great American burger. Yes. And I'm a man, Shaz, and part of my duty as a man is to eat as much red meat as I possibly can. So you get cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what we really should have been talking about at COP was how we're either going to genetically create our meat in a lab or we're going to be eating insect burgers. Those are the things, the technologies that could save us. (laughs) Like keeping growing cows in deforested land in the Amazon feeding them tons and tons of soya is as environmentally unfriendly as it's ever going to get. Um, that carbon emissions. Like, I remember at school, like, my, like I was maybe in like, 2004, I laughed in a textbook because it said that cows were the cause of climate change. And, you know, it was actually true, wasn't it? It's, like, it's a very silly fact, but uh, if we stopped eating beef and had stopped having milk from cows, that would have a massive impact. Random fact for you. Go on. Um, the easiest thing we could do that uh, would have such a big impact is just to put fridge doors on all supermarkets. So if you think how, uh, if you've got your display of like uh, fruit and veg or mm. displays of just like f- uh, fridges and freezers, well, not, not maybe not freezers, but of fridges, how a lot of them don't have doors. Uh, retailers will say, that's because it's off-putting if you put doors. There's no evidence for that. But if you just put doors, it cuts the electricity use staggeringly high. Like, absolutely. Like, uh, so, so, so quite a few of the co-ops have started doing this as energy efficiency measures, uh, to partly for environmental reasons, but partly because it saves you a fortune as well. And if Tesco did that and Asda did that, I was told uh, by uh, uh, energy portfolio manager of Central and Carl that could cut one percent of electricity use in the UK. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's a simple thing that is that's a simple manufacturing thing. Whereas I don't think technology will save us, but that's the kind of innovation that could save us. That if we can just reduce demands so much and have carbon capture and storage that's actually invested in, that will ha- that will massively reduce the problem and therefore buses and like bicycles can then actually have the impact where if you have bus lanes and they are the majority rather than single person cars, then you can transport hundreds of people in the same space as, I don't know, five cars. So it's, it's, it's getting that political will, I think, isn't it? Yes. And obviously, so one of the, and as, as someone who tries to believe in politics and thinks that politics can have a solution to this. But everyone plays politics, though. The politician shouts, that's what politicians do. We don't accuse dentists of playing dentistry. Uh, <laughs> but politicians accuse Marcus Rashford of playing politics, though. Well, they do, they, and then say they should stick to the day job despite having to. But <laughs> I suppose part, part of the issue, as, we, uh, as you sort of hinted at, at both, is that this is not the main... Uh, issue that governments are thinking about. It's not on the priority list. And one of the things that's come out of this COP is that rather than have a COP every five years, they're going to have a COP every year, which I suppose is good in a way, isn't it? Because having that sense of urgency 
is is sort of crucial, isn't it? It feels like, as you say, there's modest progress. It's not anything to open the champagne about, ironically. But it feels like this is kind of where we should have been 20 years ago. If if the Kyoto Conference, say in 2000, 2001, had, had an outcome like this, we, we'd be in a much, much better place. It is, because... The problem with the previous, say even Paris or Copenhagen, is like, this is our last chance to save the planet. If we don't save the planet now, then there's no planet anymore. Whereas having such a strong cliff edge is is not going to help. You can't just put all of all of the hope in one event because that's not how history will play out. Uh, no, and it's playing out at the moment, as you say. Yeah, so it's much better to have a COP every year and revise those targets and next time round. India maybe 2060 or technology's moved on so there are now X amount of more solar panels on people's houses so 1% less coal can be in the system. Uh, It's much more easier to break these things down incrementally than say Paris is done. Yeah. Or Copenhagen was Ed Miliband wasn't it? Ed Miliband saved the world and then it was all fine. But then Um, it wasn't. Then it wasn't. And, And so one thing that was talked about that we build on this that sort of issue of of carbon trading i suppose as well wasn't it and trying to get some sort of permit system together that might say mean that the amazon isn't just completely burned um which would be nice well very important it's also very pretty mm. yeah so so it's all about the three points some more is that we really need to encourage biodiversity we really need to just let forests be forests let the so um, planting trees is an easy way to get away from stopping your activities. But if you have if you have schemes like rewilding or specific ecosystems that are encouraged through proper conservation, along with the other things, the problem with planting trees with planting trees is that those trees that we're doing for 30 years, mm. those trees, if they're in a monoculture, won't be much help if they all get one disease and die. Well, or I think has happened in California where all the forests that have been planted as part of carbon offsetting and companies' net zero targets all burnt down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's exacerbated by it being monoculture. It's less resilient. You, you've got high temperatures and a high risk of forest fires. Forest fires will happen anyway. They'll always happen. Uh, but the climate emergency is making them more intense. It's making them wider. It's making them harder to cope with. Uh, to go back to a previous point about the electric cars... One of the reasons why the politicians are so keen is it helps create industry, but also the average person still wants to drive a car. An electric car is more palatable than me saying, get that bus instead. Uh, this, um, not You won't have this problem so much in Nigeria, but you have this problem here in, in here. You have a problem in America where expectations are still that driving is the norm, even though more people get buses every day than they do drive like, acro- across across the world so you you got to sell that that you will have there will have to be sacrifices and that's hard because there's a growing consensus that something needs to happen that we can't carry on as we are but everyone's line is just below them changing their actions yeah it fit uh, i just read shutdown which is adam Tooze's book on the covid uh, on uh, year that we've we've had and the, the rather depressing conclusion of his book, I, I think, and, and he's someone who's quite um, receptive to the sort of Green New Deal arm, argument, is you, essentially you just have policymakers sort of 
making up policy on the hoof is falling to crises as we go. That's probably what's going to end up happening in the next 10 or 20 years as well. Um, in that, it, it, and um, just look at, say, um, the vaccines, for instance, it would be really easy for any, probably any member of the G20 to have invested the 25 billion pounds that it would take to vaccinate the world. Essentially, that's what the COVAX program needs. That it, it's it's a look, it's a lot of money. If anyone wants to give this podcast twenty five billion pounds, well, you know, put it to some good podcasting use before vaccinating the world. But in terms of the money a national government could spend, it's actually relatively modest, and the actual benefit from that would be huge. And yet, no country's done that. And so, if you've got a, a real um, black and white issue like like that, where there's a an actual issue that you could do that isn't done. Um, I, it does make you wonder how optimistic we should be. There we go. I'm in my familiar role of doom monger now, so this episode can end. <laughs> the difference now, I'd say from five years ago, is the path is actually quite clear. We know what we have to do now, whereas 10 years ago, the technology hadn't moved on and the policies were still very vague. We now have a clear path and we know what to do. We know that buses and bicycles are better than electric cars. The difference now is that we need to fight for those changes. And I think that, that it's public perception, which is a key thing, isn't it? You see the rising Green Parties around the world. There's a Green Party helping govern Germany now. There's been a coalition agreed this week. Uh, you're seeing environment rise up the list of concerns until somehow Priti Patel made a big moral panic about refugees and now immigration has come to the fore. But before that, you know, immigration and mass uh, concern about the environment. And that's across the political spectrum and it's across generations as well. And I think that's a really important point, which means it will be a very salient moment in politics in the future. That's almost an inspiring note on which to end on, isn't it? So uh, thank you very much, Shaz. Uh, Steve will be back like James Bond, or will he, next week. Maybe he won't get out of Peppa Pig World at all. Maybe he's still trying to find his place in speech. Who knows, listeners? In the meantime, um, you can support us, if you like, on patreon.com forward slash not enough champagne. Shaz and I are probably going to eat some tea and then work out what we're going to talk about for our champagners, maybe, or we might just, you know, sit and chat and try and be friendly. Uh, in the meantime, our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Crown designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Crown. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. And I'm at Shazma Happy cycling. Mm-hmm.